In this episode, Ryan and I deconstruct the obsession with the status of the U.S. dollar. And a little bit later into the episode, he gets a little triggered on the Austrians. It's worth listening to. We had fun. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. Lovely Saturday morning. 20 miles south of Fort Worth, Texas, in the world headquarters of Banking with Law. How goes it, Mr. Griggs? Uh, it goes pretty... It's going great now. This last week was a... This last week was a beast. Big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Finally. So, oh, go ahead. Or April 1, 23. That's when we're recording this. What follows is not an April Fool's joke. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I look back in my email and I, I have contracted with this company to assist with, they call it a publication services company. You know, I tell people I'm doing a book and they're like, they're like, oh, you, you've got a publisher. I'm like, no, nobody who writes books has publishers except for the handful of people who do. Right, mm. who get a book advance, get paid up front. Everybody mm. else is a self-publisher. I got it. But in today's world, there are publication services companies, right? They're kind of like a general contractor for a real estate project. So they mm. oversee the editing, the aesthetics, the distribution, all of that. Or you can be your own GC, essentially, and farm all that out yourself or do however much of it yourself you want. Same principle, you know? I got you. Um, and so I have this one particular company that uh, I contracted with, and I look back to see when it was that we did that uh, when I first reached out to him. It was November of 2020. And here we are, 2023. It's almost three and a half years. And How many times did you rewrite that bad boy? I, I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> but... Yeah, the manuscript. So March 31 of this year of 23 was my uh, submission deadline for the manuscript. Oh, it was a deadline. Oh, oh the, the day. The, Self-imposed deadline or the GC's the, deadline? Your fee buys you until March Talk 31. Talk about Parkinson's law, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know I took every bit of time. And then, I mean, I. it was a... I still haven't fully digested all of the lessons because it was a, the hardest thing I've ever done, and because it is a real book. I mean, for what I mean, I know it's finance and there's the marketing and IBC and all, you know everything, virtually almost everything that you look at on Amazon or where you buy books that has something to do with IBC or banking. Uh, is marketing copy bound to look at a book, look like a book? And I people will say that. You, you're still marketing. We've talked about that, but uh, this is a real, I mean, it's 65,000 words. Do I get a free copy if I just pay shipping and handling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. And like the most recent draft was 70,000 words. And I've over the last week cut out like a quarter of it and then added wow. back like another 15% or so. So it ended up at 65,000. There's still another round of like editorial review and comments, which I'm sure they'll have, 
well-intended comments that probably don't apply that say <laughs> thank you and then just go ahead and publish it. Uh, and then I'm gotta, listening. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. Just publish. <laughs> yeah. Print that bad boy. Huh? You know, they, I mean, they are serving, these companies serve people who maybe don't have a writing back. And I'm not saying I'm like some great writer, but I write a lot and speak a lot and have for a long time. And, a lot of the people who they want to serve are the people who don't have the background like that, who want to write and uh, who want to start writing and bring a message to somebody who that has never, they've never interacted with before. And, you know, for the first time, that's just a different, like me. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the result of that in terms of the structure that's taught and like what's encouraged is just, it's good for a lot of applications. But well, I, I remember me. early on talking and, and the way they kind of laid it out and or encouraged you to lay it out. And, you know, of course, you know, you thought through that and it didn't happen that way, which is good. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, I, I mean, it's not that I don't care. Obviously, I care. I spent all this time and it need, there's stuff in there that I think needs to be said, but there is a sense in which I kind of don't care about the the consequence, you know, not the consequence, but the results. Like it's not a, this isn't a part of a marketing funnel. There's not like a, a target, you know, a revenue target, KPI target. There's like, there's none of that. Uh, it's just, it needs, it's stuff I think that needs to be said. It's stuff that, it's honest. The way this started was I would keep repeating yeah. The same sort of things with everybody one-on-one. -on -one. And after you do that the hundredth time, you figure out, oh, maybe this should just be more widely available so that we don't have to redo this every time for the rest of my professional career. Well, that assumes that everybody you talk to is going to read your book before you talk to them, which is just not the case, sir. <laughs> well, it, it assumes ultimately that yeah. the people I do business with have. <clears throat> well, yeah, okay, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that you, yeah. is ultimately where that goes. I mean, it's just one step. I'm not saying you got to read the book to the. I mean, that may one day be what it grows into, but uh, yeah, it, it's anyway. So I'm, that, that I'm excited, all, man. That, this was yesterday, right? April one, March thirty one was the deadline. Parkinson's law. I did not know that. I'm gonna have fun with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> But, and I've, I've had, you know, people have I've started to talk about it more and more now that it is actually done and people have asked about pre-orders and whatnot. And I'm pretty sure it'll be available towards the end of fall of this year. I'll have more precise dates later, but, and I'm going to narrate the audiobook, and that'll be out later. Um, but yeah, it stressed me out. Um, it, it got, you know, threw me off my diet and exercise routine you should see the everything. donuts this young man's been putting away What's it's like, not unbelievable record man. that for <laughs> ever on listen YouTube. man i want you know and i you know talk about tech you got a nice machine he's there jealous about my ipad i'm not jealous. <laughs> i'm impressed he's like moving uh <laughs> clipping out it's called a screenshot yeah doing screenshots <laughs> and embedding them in. i'm not a tech guy i'm like i can even tag you yesterday on the beautiful facebook post you made about your book i'm like wouldn't even tag you. I'm like, we're friends, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm the non-tech guy. Um, but, the, you know, speaking of pre-orders, and I said, man, I want two copies, and I want four or five signed copies, and I want them, like, fresh off. 
I want them still warm from the printing press, sir. Kind of like the donuts that you brought. (laughs) Oh, that's the connection. Yeah. You can have whatever you want. But uh, I appreciate that. I'm excited. I mean, I'm expecting that it would be required reading for anyone who uh, wants to speak intelligently about the infinite banking concept. Well, I hope it helps. I mean, it's. It, it follows the same sort of track that's on the whole life insurance mechanic series. It deviates quite a bit, especially towards the end. Uh, but it's the kind of stuff, like you know, like Nelson said, if you know what's going on, you'll know what to do. I mean, everything that I've done with clients that has seemed to work well over the past five and a half, going on six years, is just talking through like why things work the way they do. Has it been that long? Man, October will be six. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Man, if you hadn't got started, you're you're just like wasting time. I mean, you started becoming your own banker. Like, get to it, man. Yeah. Six years. I've, yeah. So, it, you know, I hope it, it's going to piss some people off. <laughs> I, <laughs> Did you name names, bro? No. <laughs> but no. they'll self identify when they read it. I, oh, Maybe. <laughs> or maybe they'll gloss <laughs> over it like they all do. No. Uh, you know, annually renewing term, direct recognition, uh, limited pay, short pay style contracts, stuff that goes on in the quote unquote IBC footprint. You know, I hope part of what this does is, if anything, if, if people disagree, the, the the myth that anybody who can find the letters I, B, and C on a keyboard all do the same thing, it, it'd be okay to shatter that myth. You know, it's just not the case. And so I'm sure it'll get pushed back and people will complain too. But what's new? Yeah. Okay. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I talk about the noise all the time. It's not going to go away. It's not going to change. It just change. It like evolves over time, but it's not going to go away. Um, and we share different things back and forth, you know, online because if you're looking at an ad or anything too long, you know, then all the social media, just feeds it up to you mm-hmm. and and, it, and it's like i can i can barely and I'm, I'm a i'm a lifelong learner i love to learn i do not know everything i do not have the arrival syndrome um, even in the infinite banking concept and in the infinite banking footprint i do not have the arrival syndrome i am absolutely teachable and so i give most of these things uh, a solid effort in hopes that you know it's going to be good most is a big word. I, I'm a selection. continually disappointed, <laughs> and I can't stand it. You know, I can't, I'm just like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, I was um, listening to one I shared with you this morning, and you know, it's just, I'm, I'm in shock. You know, at the the superficiality. Yeah, that it, it's an inch deep. Uh, if that talk about grace. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> and it. And, I don't want to just be hard on. I don't either. People, but, but you know, it just is what it is. It's like we can. I can complicate anything, right? I can mm-hmm. sell myself anything between here and the door. Um, becoming your own banker is about as simple as it can be. And Nelson got it done in ninety-two pages. You know, now with the illustrations in there, and there's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion. You know, he said it. He said it. You've all heard it. That he, if he were to go back and rewrite becoming your own banker he wouldn't put the illustrations in there because it serves as a point of confusion when you don't know uh, yeah. 
what goes on behind the numbers. And then I personally believe it serves as an opportunity to to uh, uh, manipulate yeah, the, it, the consumer, you know, by someone else who doesn't understand what's going on behind the numbers, you know. And I'm not saying that it's nefarious and it's set out, you know, they set out to manipulate somebody, but they don't know. And it, it, it's... It's a distraction. The The numbers are so often a distraction. If you do not structure and require the conceptual educational elements first, if you throw the numbers there with it, that, that is in, in our modern, the numbers don't lie, just show me the data, technocratic materialist mentality. Our attention, our goldfish attention span just yes. goes right to the numbers. Absolutely. And which one's bigger than the other? It's such a hyper reductionist, a theoretical, uh, fun- ironically enough, mythical, just fantastical way of attempting an analysis. It's not even analysis because there's no Zero logic. Analysis. There's no, no, and I mean that. Li- I'm not just being hyperbolic. I mean that. Li- like there's no. Uh, logical evaluation there there can't be right it's just observation of magnitude there's no analysis no evaluation of what causes the numbers of why something might happen one way or the other Uh, it's just where is the bigger number and i really as i get these questions and it, it I don't mean to get frustrated with people, but it catches me off guard sometimes. It's, you know, and I get it, you know, repay loans at the market, the higher market rate of interest. You know, how do I do that? What does that mean? How do I pay the company more interest? Do interest payments cause my cash value to rise? If I take more loans, does that make things better? It's like, no, 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 no. Those are just fundamentals, very... Uh, introductory misconceptions. But Nelson explains it in words. <laughs> I know. Next I, to I, the I, numbers. Page 58. It and so it it seems to me it seems to me that the appearance of the numbers there with the text are distracting the reader yes. Yes. from what is yes. being communicated yep. verbally. Yep. And it's look at the f- big numbers. Uh and that's so the, – the reason it's a problem is that it leads to a misunderstanding of what's going on inside of a whole life policy and thereby confounds or uh, obfuscates, makes more difficult the application of IBC to one's own circumstances. And because I had a call yesterday with a guy and ugh, I hadn't read Nelson's book – you know, got in touch quickly. It's like, okay, well, maybe didn't listen much because, like, I expect reading first. Uh, and he's got this elaborate scheme. You know, he's going to pay the premium and then take the loans and put that in a segregated account at a high, with a high, in a high yield savings account where the interest growth will offset the policy. Lo- I'm in, I'm using uh, relatively advanced terminology. He did not use these words, but wow. what he was expressing was put the money in a segregated checking yeah, account, sure. high yield savings, whatever, to offset policy loan interest rates, then use the money to go and invest in the, through a Roth. And then, yeah, and then somehow 
investment returns through a tax-qualified plan are going to return to the segregated savings, and then that's going to pay off the loans, and then the cash values. This elaborate scheme. I can almost tell you what he's listened to. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And he even said at one point, um, he's like, it sounds like, you know, maybe this isn't making sense to you. (laughs) 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 Or maybe I'm not making sense, he said to me. And and he he said, like it, like something like it like has already happened or like when i tried this before and i'm like well, what do you mean when you you know you know what do you mean did you who were you talking to he's like oh a, a, another ibc practitioner i'm like uh-huh yeah right well <laughs> and so i, I told him like you know look dude you got to go back to the source you, you got the anybody who's gonna let you go not let you you can do what you want but anybody who's gonna take you through a process to become a client, to get a policy without ensuring that the proper foundation of, is laid is just setting you up for failure. Uh, but all the, you know, and he had the, he has kept confusing terminology and that's where I was going with this is people mm-hmm. nitpick yep. when I correct terminology, you know, it's not a deposit, it's a premium. You're not repaying money to the policy. You're paying a loan principal like, or a loan repayment. And, and they think I'm nitpicking, like, well, I don't, I don't know the words. You know, you know the words, smarty pants. It's like, oh. yeah, it's, it's always that, right? Well, maybe I just don't know the right words. It's like, well, you don't know the right words. And that is a problem. And it's not just being picky. It's that words matter. And these cash flows have meaning. And if you want to go and implement this and allocate a lot of your cash flow to it in a given year, you might want to know what the cash flow is called, right? Like that. And I'm not just going. I'm not trying to be, a, a, you know, picky about it. Uh, I'm not trying to piss people off. Uh, Try not to cuss. <laughs> but, um, uh, you have an opportunity. To you can you can adjust. Well, and, you're doing good. No, it's, you're not cussing. It's fine. And, and so it's like, you know, it, that these those things do matter. And if you would go to the source and read the words, what do you think? Do you think a a, a consumer or a uh, potential prospective client, whatever, you know, and that an individual such as that, do you think that he would have read your book? No. 70 or 65,000 words no. that may have another adjustment, Mm-mm. right? And so <clears throat> I, I'm always impressed when, uh, you know, we get calls and they're just all in. They're all in. They've watched a 30-minute 45-minute, whatever, video or audio, and it wasn't Nelson Nash. You know, it's not not what I've said. Yeah. And not what, you know, you've done or you've said, and they're all in. And I'm just thinking, my gosh, I'm impressed. Who, Whatever you watched is it's, so powerful. And then you've got to deconstruct. I mean, not every time, but quite often, often. in that kind of case. You know, you've got to kind of deconstruct or just – you know, I try to gently, you know, point out the differences of this and that and why it matters. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, because it does matter. Yeah. They go through this whole, he had this whole elaborate schematic in his mind. Yes. You know, of all how, all the cash was going to get, and I'm going to get the pot, I'm going to get the positive spread here and there. I'm like, oh, the spread. Oh, good. The spread. You know, I, if I never hear the word spread again, like, uh, <laughs> you know, because all that is, is like, ooh, bigger number versus smaller number spread. <laughs> arbitrage, it's like, baby. It's arbitrage. Uh, it's how the wealthy do it, man. You know, oh, and here's another, I don't want to pick on this guy, but I mean, no. Oh, apparently <laughs> it's easy <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> don't be this guy you're talking about <laughs> other people need to learn from this it's like he goes you know i haven't got into real estate yet 
but I'm really excited. You know, I want. Yeah. I think real estate is what I'm going to do with this. So he's building out the schematic, and the, you got the Roth, you've got the policy, you've got the arbitrage, you've got the spread, and the real estate. Yep. Yeah, he's probably listening to three or four, you know? <laughs> it's like, look, I love real estate. I love real estate. But when you combine real estate with the infinite banking concept or the infinite banking concept with anything and everything you're going to do anyway, right, it's a home run, my opinion. Um, but it, it seems like, you know, and I've spoke at real estate places, I mean, back whenever they were like, life insurance, yeah, you know, but now every real estate group has an IBC expert, <laughs> you know, and you got to get massive liquidity immediately yep. to do your real estate deal because you're going to make 20% on the real estate and, and, and the spread and the leverage and get your and, money right out. Oh uh, I, say, I say all this because it, it takes one to know one y'all. Like I know what the overthinking hyper analytic, you know, hyper imaginative routine looks like. Because I you do it? Oh, I'm well acquainted with that. Like, <laughs> I, I know exactly what it's like to wander off into some mental wilderness about how, with all oh, of these wonderful abstractions about how all this is going to work. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put that all on paper, pencil it all out. Great. When you're done, the need to take control of the banking function will still be there. Right. And, and that's what I told him. I'm like, you know, all that's great. Okay. Did the, all wait, that, the banking function ever come out of this, man? No. Those words? No. Nothing about banking. Nothing about controlling the banking function. No, nothing about profiting, positioning oneself to, to profit from the movement of money, from the provision of loans and repayment of loans. Yeah, but he's uh, explaining that's what he's going to do. He's going to profit from all those cash flows. Right. Sure, but and that, but that's all in the and that is the problem, right? There's always this focus on the investment arbitrage, the entrepreneurial arbitrage, right? Never on the banker yeah. who's financing both sides of that, right? And that's where the real money's being and made. shorting it, making a profit right. while it shorts. Yeah, and <laughs> so the, the the whole focus is wrong, and it's always right to investing. I'm going to go invest. You know this idea that we've brought up. That doesn't get discussed anywhere else, frankly, is the idea that a sound capitalization strategy is a necessary prerequisite to optimal investment strategy. Like if you would just systematically, properly allocate savings in a strategic That's fashion. That's a bad word in the financial world today. Savings is boring. Right. It's cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. And my leverage. Yeah. Savings pre-exist and must, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. If you can't do that, how can you even control arbitrage? How, if, you can't, if you can't systematically accumulate capital intelligently with a, with a rigorous method, right? on purpose, intentional. Mm -hmm. How can you ever control a complicated schematic like that? What a phenomenal question. And if you're not the one controlling it, you're probably the one getting controlled. I love you that. Know? You go to the table of all the, look, and, and this has been my philosophy for a long time, and you know, 30 years, a lot of clients, a lot of different age groups and, you know, and anybody and everybody is welcome at the table as long as they have the client's best interest. 
in, mm. in the forefront and in mind. That's why they're there. Or they or there's no place for there's them. A lot of folks outside in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> so when when you're at the table and everybody's talking about the sucker, mm-hmm. it may be you. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, this really relates to what I actually wanted to talk about today. <laughs> oh, um, uh, look, and this, that reminds me of a comment. Can't these guys just get to the point? It's like, no, there are several points made. That's why we do long form, because we like engagement. We like talking to you. We like talking about this. We like talking with each other. We like speaking with you. We like inviting you into the conversation. There's not one point to any episode ever, ever, never, ever. Yeah. And these comments will be really, I don't even know what. You know, episode they were commenting on, but they just come up every now and then. It's like, oh my gosh, can't they get to a point? No, these are made for you to walk on by. Did that happen? Maybe, maybe while we're recording live, the AV guys can bring that comment over if if it's possible to dredge that up. Because I always Pardon. love engaging with the comments. Uh, <laughs> okay. But but there's this, uh, you know, because we had bank runs. We talked about bank runs recently, episode one sixty six. Yeah, did you listen to one sixty seven? No, you were busy releasing your manuscript. Uh, yeah, I was busy grind on, on the grind. Well, you got to listen to both, in my opinion, because after what, which is phenomenal, one sixty six, and it's even pointed out in one sixty seven. Um, and you'll if you'll go listen, you're going to hear all this uh, again. Um. It was, I believe, a, a very good episode 166. There have been fabulous comments on that, even you know, on mm-hmm. the episode in phone calls and different emails and texts that I've received. I'm sure you've received mm-hmm. them as well. So when we did that, that was before Credit Swiss and UBS. And you know, I said it not on not on in an episode. And these I mean, I have there are outstanding A B ninjas here. Right, but they just happen to be younger, right? And I mentioned in conversation UBS Payne Weber, and it's like nothing. Nobody remembers Payne Weber. Yeah, I don't. Mm. Okay, ju- just UBS Payne Weber. This is nothing new. Is my point anyway? Since one sixty six was released, Credit Suisse, you know, was forced into a shotgun wedding with UBS Payne Weber. They dropped the Payne Weber. And it was just another iteration of what has gone on. And then uh, Deutsche Bank, right? <clears throat> and so I came in on a Saturday that wasn't going to record. You know, Ryan's like, we're going we're gonna to shoot this Saturday. I'm like, no, no. And then that week, you know, more emails, more calls, Credit Suisse, and then UBS, uh, I mean, uh, Deutsche Bank. So I came in to shoot a short video for a client only, mm. you know, just to talk about uh, the banking crisis and life insurance company and very specific life insurance companies that – that my clients own and engage with and pay large premiums to. And, and, but that turned into a, a long form, like 46 minute. I don't want to say a rant, but I did speak faster in that 167 than I normally do. So Hmm. those of you that accuse me of speaking too slow and, and don't want to, you know, speed up the playback speed. I did speak a little faster in that one. I'm just saying, that's phenomenal. You should watch it. I think. I mean, I'm just, I think it was good. So we're going to talk about banking. Watch both 166 and 167. And if you're a client, go to client only access and, and there's some additional stuff there. Yeah. Well, and that was just the background. I mean, that's just kind of what's going on and financial news. And there's this happened. So we did an episode in the past called uh, Inflation Fears or Inflated Fears. Yeah. Yeah. Title I'm quite proud of. Came up with. Uh, Ryan does. He does come up with a lot of the titles because, no, no, he's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, turns out that was like a year and a half ago we did that. Wow. I, I didn't think it was that. Yeah. Uh, so I went back and watched some of that as I was on my way up here. And because, okay, all this is coming together. So you got the contacts, you got the memory of that inflated or inflation fears. And then I had a call with uh, my, an, a, a colleague, I don't know what to call him. Uh, the guy who I worked with to get the Carl, the 1888 Carl Menger article on capital theory uh, translated. He's uh, about my age and in his normal life is in finance, right? Doesn't always just translate old economics text. Uh, <laughs> although we're working on that, <laughs> that might change one day. Uh, and I had a, you know, he's in the financial field trying to figure out what he wants to do. And we get started talking and he knows about how I do IBC and it's always fun, you know, cause you can tell when someone knows that you do IBC, but doesn't bring it up because <laughs> there's, uh, you know, there's some, well, that doesn't work because, you know, fill in the thing. And for the Austrians and for the libertarians, it's always, well, it's dollar denominated. No, you see Austrian. Oh yeah. Very solidly. Solidly. Yeah. Well, he's, that's why he's able to so competently trans, uh, translate Manger. Well that, and he knows German. Yeah. But late 19th century, Austrian, German, and in economic, you got to know the economics to be able to. Yeah, no question. Yeah, sure, sure. So sure. no, he knows the stuff, but I mean, Jeff Dice, that Mises Institute, when he spoke at the My favorite, you know, he, you know, he uh, is leaving the Mises Institute. No, yeah, why? I, I didn't. I figured he wouldn't know. I don't know. I'm, there's not been an announcement yet. I don't think it's bad. I think he's just moving on. But um, you want to release this before he announces? Everybody's tweeting about it already. It's already oh, public perfect. knowledge. Okay. Uh, I'm the last to know. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jeff Dice. I mean, dang. Uh, but when he spoke at NNI, 18 or 19. Yeah, 18. I think it was one of our friends from Canada who asked after his talk about IBC and whole life. And even he then mentioned this, you know, dollar denominated thing. And well, okay. So my other Austrian friend was, you know, hung up on this. And I'm like, dude, I don't care. I'm going somewhere with this. I promise. It's like, I don't care if you denominate the values of whole life in pebbles. Like, yeah. I want more available than what is paid in over the long run. Why can't the Austrians and, get that? I mean, you know, I don't want to throw you off. But no, I mean, it's, a phenomenal, it, it's a really great question because it, it, it's so pervasive, this dollar denominator, the, the uh, you know, de-dollarfication, or what's it called? What do they use it? De-dollarization, right? It's always uh, the the this idea that there is something special about the a particular currency called the U.S. dollar that happens to be the currency used to denominate things of value that that particular historical fact has infected the minds of people. They think that there is something. Uh, it's as if the U.S. dollar is somehow intertwined or embedded in what it means for an asset to be an asset. Like it's the idea that, uh, you know, if the, if the dollar goes away, if a different money were to be used, that in some sense assets were, would, would lose their value. Um, so the value of any asset is intrinsically or yes, explicitly a tied to the U.S. To dollar. the U.S. dollar, yeah. Well, and, I mean, to me, did they jump smooth over that the empire, by brute force, ensures and maintains a world reserve currency? I mean, did they they talk about that? So, they, they, I mean, ta they talk about that, but I think it's linked to it because 
what what they see and this is perfect this is legitimate to a degree you know they see the declining state of the US empire sure. they see these uh, eastern powers starting to transact in different currencies uh and this it's so interesting because they're these are the same people who ostensibly despise the fact that there is such a thing as the U.S. empire that is this hegemonic, you know, uh, ultra government authority in the world. They're the ones who despise that. And yet they've got this fear, this like, uh, oh, my gosh, this, it's a Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, this crippling fear oh my gosh. of of that going away. That the, the if that's we lose, a Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, if we lose the thing we hate, oh we'll somehow be suffering. Yeah, well, they won't have anything to talk about. Isn't that weird? Isn't that bizarre it's though? Very, very, I very mean, bizarre. Because it's an you go on YouTube, you spend five seconds. It's an avalanche of just constant, unending, unceasing fear porn. Right? It's. The dollar's going away. The U.S. hegemony is ending and, you know, gold to the moon and Bitcoin to the moon and all of this ultra. It, it, there's a religiosity to it. There's yeah. this it, it, this catas- this uh, like catastrophic mania. We use it, it's explicitly religious terminology. It'll be an apocalypse. Right. There's a, there will be an this term is used so often existential crisis. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> do y'all realize what you're saying? I mean, you're it, it's. They're, they're, these people are, whether they know it or not, confessing a secular faith in U.S. hegemony. Yeah. And, and the dollar is their icon. It's their idol. You know, and if, the, if the dollar... You now, know, this it, is an indictment. Is, is this not true, though? <laughs> I mean, is this not true? And they're like, if, it, it's as if, you know, the, these awful powers or these Pharisees are committing sacrilege against this... This they're idle the dollar, yet they hate the dollar. I mean, how <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's got a cause, and I really do think part of why I want to talk about this. I think it causes like a psychological uh, trauma, like a split. Like how mm-hmm. could you how could you maintain these two ideas that you know fiat currency is evil and the and the U.S. empire is evil and militarism aggressive militarism is bad and. You know, all of this is morally viable, you know, the non-aggression principle, all this. And yet you flip out on the alleged, you know, story, narrative, rumor that it's going to end. It's like, (laughs) wow. Well, they get paid in dollars. Right. So all their contracting and salaries. So in the the midst (laughs) of all of that fear and, and just bewildering chaos. It's like, okay, well, where, what's this? First of all, is there any discussion of a solution? Right. Because the only time there's ever, I was listening to this podcast it was, and I, I, I couldn't help it. I was sitting in a Starbucks parking lot laughing. And like the only time this guy who had like a website like called thedollarcrash.com or like you couldn't make this up. I mean, it was like, you know, devastationapocalypse.com. And, the one time he mentions anything remotely positive, he says, you know, you could make a if you're if you're in the, the right flowing stream and, and you know which gold and precious metals mining stocks to buy, you could make a lot of money. I'm like, oh, is that your solution for the American consumer? 
For the 320 million people, that's just, to go research and find the right precious metals mining stocks. So, like, I that's nothing new. It, it, it isn't. And that's part of why it's funny. It's, 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 the, the only time there's a mention of a possible solution, it's always this totally fantastical, unrealistic, unachievable panacea. Right? It's not marginal. It's never incremental. It's never, hey, there's something you could do each day to get better, and over time right. that that'll add up. <clears throat> it's always this big panacea kind of thing where if you find the right stock, what you know, a mythical search. Yes. Yeah, and that, but that's your solution. Okay, or it's Bitcoin, and then we get into the, you know, Bitcoin, whatever. Look, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I <and> <laughs> look. <laughs> I always come back to this with this. I came back to it with this with uh, my Austrian friend. There is a and I I use these words and I don't think people understand what I'm saying. I don't know how to be any more clear about it. Are you talking about your Austrian friends or the all American people who are who who conflate asset value with the dollar? I, I just the Austrian person. I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know how to better say this that the value of an, a, a durable good, the value of an asset is cat, capital. The idea of monetary worth is categorically, fundamentally distinct from the particular kind of money. Like, there are durable goods in Canada. They don't use the US dollar, right? Like you can have stuff that's worth money where the money isn't the dollar. Like all money is, for whatever the particular reason, is the general medium of exchange. It's the most saleable asset. It's or the most saleable commodity used to be when we had commodity money. It's the most saleable good. That's all it is. It facilitates well, that's exchange. that's part of their argument. Now the, the money's not a commodity because it's not backed by anything but the brute force of the empire. Yeah, and all that is <laughs> circumstantially interesting. I mean, that's, like, a, the, that's like an intellectual uh, dog chasing his tail. It, yeah, it's like, yes, okay, great, and... And like Exactly. Yeah, okay, Bretton Woods is closed. You know, we got the Fed. It's a cartel. I'm on board with all that. You're going to go use U.S. dollars to put oil in your car, to buy groceries, buy gas. I mean, that. And pay a life insurance premium in the U.S. Yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, even <laughs> post de dollarization, you know, where we're in a multipolar world, I got to use all the buzzwords, right? To get all the SEO. <laughs> even when we're, even we're in, oh in that future, whenever it might happen, the odds that you're going to go use renminbi to buy potatoes at Kroger is very low. Like you're going to use, Whatever happens to be the domestically, governmentally approved currency. And maybe there's <laughs> one day where that happens to be a privately issued money or an algorithmically issued money like Bitcoin. That you, you we individuals on the margin do not control that. What you can control is how you or whether you systematically accumulate monetary value regardless of what the money is that's both whether you do and how you yeah. 
systematically accumulate capital. You control both of those. So the online fear porn people go into their little spasmatic fits about how the world's going to end. Their solutions are unachievable panaceas. Mm -hmm. They'll occasionally talk about a different form of money. There's never, with one key exception, there's never a discussion of banking. I don't think the crypto people understand that what the kind of money is is a separate question, whether it's digital or fiat or commodity, what the, the particular physical or digital manifestation of the money is, is a separate question from the legal question, the conceptual question of banking. And they say that there's one exception online outside of IBC, and it is in the seven people who are discussing full reserve banking right so caitlin long had has had has spoken at the mises institute she's awesome she's in wyoming wyoming has this i don't know the particular name of it i can look up in a moment but they've got a state uh institution that will charter banks under state not federal, but state authorities. Ooh, a state bank. And, and so- Can they issue their state banking currencies? <laughs> well, what Caitlin Long did, so it used to be called something else. Now it's called Custodia. And their model was uh, beyond full reserve banking. So they would hold a hundred, they would hold a dollar and eight cents for every dollar on deposit. Right, more than what, what depositors had, and the they would collect fees and and facilitate transactions. That was going to be their role. Uh, of course, uh, there's other forms of this. There was one called Narrow Bank. The Federal Reserve and FDIC have quietly, implicitly prohibited these things, either through restricting access to major financial networks or what have you. It's an ongoing battle. I'm it, I'm really fascinated by it. I love it. Uh, it could run right parallel with someone's own IBC style system. Cause it's again, third party banks are not where you go accumulate your capital, right? You do that in your own private assets, but there is still a role mm -hmm. for a payment facilitator. Absolutely. Right. And that could be, that could absolutely. And we're so, I don't think there's so much fear porn online. You can't find anything positive. This is one thing that's really cool. Like the custod the attempt by custodia to do business is like the third within the last few years of an attempt by a new entrant into banking to operate on a full reserve system. Like there are for the first time, I don't know if it's, I don't know if ever, I don't know the historical record well enough to say ever, but that I know of the first time where new entrants into banking are explicitly attempting to operate on a full reserve model. Like, that's not been happening oh, look, until Kadhafi? really recently. Um, so the fact that that is that there are more than one attempts at that is really freaking cool. I think eventually it's into the kind of thing where, especially given the way banking is regulated and the different kinds of charters you can get, at some point a state like a Wyoming or maybe a Texas is just going to say, "Here's your charter, go do business." Right, because the only reason <clears throat> that, that a phenomenal the only reason a financial institution, to my understanding, needs some sort of federal approval is if they're seeking access to the Federal Reserve, meaning to hold money at the Fed, or and to use things like FedNow, their their interbank payment system, 
or to uh, get access to FDIC insurance. Well, if you're full reserve bank, you don't need FDIC. And if you theoretically, theoretically, if you can operate on a blockchain, you don't need a Federal Reserve interbank payment system. And all that can be done mutually. Like there's enough theoretical groundwork there to my mind to say that within, you know, five years to have a functioning full reserve institution that just operates as a payment facilitator is possible. That's possible. And that I think that's f- super freaking exciting. Anyway, that is one. By the way, nobody's talking about that. <laughs> Are you sure? Caitlin. I mean, there's aren't there people out there like no. presenting themselves as IBC and cryptocurrency on the blockchain? And, you know, it's going to be uber safe. Oh, we're not. That is totally different. Don't put that right next to this. Okay. this is, <laughs> that is totally different. We'll save that's that triggering for another else. episode. Yeah. Right. Um, no, Caitlin has. She's basically the only one. I mean, she's the the person, the principal at Custodia Banks. She's done some interviews, but, and people are like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, it's full reserve. It's not fractional reserve. There's very little in the way of the implications that are being fleshed out. The one thing that uh, the people like online now that is part of this, that they're kind of catching on to is, because it's technology oriented, right? Uh, Is that bank runs happen faster now? Oh, yeah. I can can do There's not a line outside the bank. I can do a bank run from my phone kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. and the, the the implication for fractional versus full reserve banking is, well, if runs can happen faster, banks need to be relatively more liquid in order to accommodate rapid outflows. Yeah. It's like, well, the full extension of that is just a full reserve bank, isn't it? So that there's this technological component. Or a disruption in the digital technology to access your bank digitally. We can interrupt that. Sure. Yeah, that's another element. But yeah, okay. with respect with yeah. respect to liquidity and solvency, it's and and, I, and the Federal Reserve is promoting this, right? The Fed now interbank uh, overnight or immediate pay twenty four seven payment system is coming. Like the state is facilitating the increase in transaction speed, and the, the but the the increased transaction speed runs up against this problem of inherent insolvency, and. In the meantime, I think the reason they're okay, the powers that be are okay with it now is that the natural result is further centralization and consolidation, yep. right? The small and regional banks go under because the Federal Reserve cartel can offer the bailouts to the elite players because they can. The Federal Reserve is willing to lend against at par. Oh my, OMG! At par, U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. By the way, side note, it never it did, it occurred to me the other day why the Fed would be willing to lend at par against in particular mortgage-backed securities. Like I get the fact that the Fed can lend against against treasuries at par because it's backed by the full faith and credit of the US, like the uh, allegedly the government will pay must pay and so the value will be there and so they they'll lend at par and they're just say I think there's essentially something like interest theft that's happening there like you can't just say, oh, between now and then, you can have the use of the money now at par on the expectation that we're going to get paid at par two years later. It's like, okay, well, there's two years of interest, of time value money there that someone's getting robbed of. But anyway, s- separate point. <laughs> the, but the reason they'll lend against mortgage-backed securities is because, or a, specifically agency, uh, mortgage-backed agency securities, is because the government's insuring them. No kidding. The government. Maine. Freddie Mac. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the Fed will lend against anything insured by the government, which is stuff 
Either that so happens to be with Fannie and Freddie or that's issued directly by the U.S. government. Of course, what will the federal government not insure? Well, of course, the loans for mom and pop corporation down the street or mom and pop shop. Who does their banking? Well, small and medium sized regional banker. So who's the one who doesn't have collateral that they can go to the Fed to get access to these facilities? Well, it's your small and regional bank. And so they're the ones getting squeezed. So in the meantime, like while this is all happening, there is centralization and consolidation. The elite players are happy. But what they're not taking account of, I don't think, to enough of an extent, is the demand this is going to produce for the local, small, payment, true payment facilitator where there's a genuine sense of safety. Right where we don't have to say, oh, FDIC, I got to calculate my limits, and you know, as a, you got to go, I got to go attend the annual meeting so I can see what my bank's been investing in, so I can determine whether there's, you know, they got too much in their hold to maturity side of their, you know, I have to do all that. I can just be confident that the internal accounting is such that the bank is safe. I can go get my money and get out. Well, that can only happen under a full reserve system. I think that demand <laughs> is starting to happen. Okay, there's a big old digression. Um, that's the one aspect of online financial media where banking is discussed. Everywhere else, in the vast majority of financial fear porn land, is right to investing. Skipping clean over who controls the banking function. Yeah. I, uh, you know, like everyone else, you know, you get all kinds of little videos, especially over the last few weeks, about banking. And I've listened to, you know, three or four of them. Uh, the first couple, you know, fully. And the rest of them, you know, just get to the point where they get to the point <clears throat> of their whole little production. And the one that, like, just threw me over the top was, uh, and it wasn't that long, you know, 15, 20-minute video <clears throat> tops. And the guy was talking about banking in the crisis, and he's throwing out buzzwords and things and mentioning inside information like you know he's got some banking insiders on the hook of course and, um and it's and it's, it's an interesting listen when all of it's happening right now you know the news breaks today that this bank's that and this bank's doing this and this bank's being taken over then the video comes right out it's like man what a production team they have right to spit one out in an afternoon but he gets to the point of it's gold he's selling gold yeah and and then he gets into storage, and he's like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm not saying I do this. But, you know, it's always physical, you know, uh, possession of gold, which I agree with. But he's saying the best place to hide it, because you got to protect it, right, once you have it, if you have it. He's saying the best place to hide the gold is in a septic system, because no one will ever look at that. Yeah, I mean, that's... I'm just that, talking about fear porn. I'm just saying that is the epitome of fear porn. You know, it comes to mind because I happen to be doing some construction and they just did the septic system. By the way, that's about as close to banking as someone who thinks about gold will ever get. You know? <laughs> oh Store God. your precious metals in a septic system. <laughs> I'm, not even, I'm not kidding. You know, and it's like, oh my gosh, to go on this banking crisis and this and this and this and all the buzzwords. Here at the end of the day, I'm selling gold and you should hide it. And the best place is a septic system. And it's like, oh my gosh, how much of that do you want to listen to? I'd rather listen to someone like Caitlin Long. Yeah, yeah. 
She'd be. I haven't. I haven't met her. I've only ever seen her. But when I've when I did previously see her, she was talking just about Mises and stuff, and um, which is all good. But I didn't know anything about her uh, banking activities at the time. It'd be cool to meet her now. But uh, you know where that gold thing goes. You know, I, I get a giggle out of this because Nelson would say, you know, you want my worthless dollars for your silver, your precious metals. Uh, I mean, yeah, say you do the, the what I like to look at the internal logic of a proposition, right? And so the idea that buying gold is a solution to inflation implies that what's good about buying gold is that the dollar price will increase. So what's the end game there? Are you going to go sell your precious gold for dollars in the future? You know, if, um, Justin, could we get that comment earlier that he spoke of? And then would you get the one that, because these haven't been released yet, the comment about, because I made that comment, it's like, why, why would you sell me, you know, your valuable gold for my worthless dollars? I said that. So there's a comment specifically on that. Oh, goody. So- it's it's it, and it's oh my it's Nirvana you know when you get some of these comments so we can comment on <laughs> yeah no it'd be good like I mean and I'm just like with cryptocurrency I have nothing against buy you want to buy it buy it I don't why, what do I care you know um, my my problem is the is the more underlying fundamental fundamental logical and strategic question like is that a solution to on the ground, practical, strategic questions that individuals face. You know, is that is that a? I don't like the idea of a retirement plan, like a tax qualified retirement. I'm not talking about that, but is that a, a strategy and a method that will serve the client's actual financial needs in their lifetime and f- in, in in their late life years? And then, to me, the answer is no, because it doesn't address. The underlying conceptual problem, which is where is the where is capital accumulation occurring? Right. All that is is the accumulation of a particular commodity. It's a commodity, and it's concentration. You could you, look, you it's could trading. It's a trading commodity. Is yeah. All it is. You you could say that the accumulation of gold is a capitalization strategy because as you accumulate more gold, the dollar value of it increases and maybe the dollar value of your total precious metals holdings is greater than the dollar value of your other assets and therefore your capital, your monetary value is accumulated, so so to speak, in gold. I would say, okay, all that's well and good. However, a precious metal is a very poor asset in which to capitalize for the purposes of deployment of capital. A gold bar does not have, for instance, a contractually granted collateralization provision. You can't go take your gold to your precious metals broker and demand a loan up to the dollar value of the gold to go and spend. Why? Because anybody who would lend against the underlying asset cannot guarantee the value of the asset. And so even if you could get somebody to lend against it, there are going to be various hedges to make sure that the lender is covered in the event the price of the asset moves or you default, right? Only in whole life, 
is there an explicit loan provision, right? This, so what this means is the, the access, we got to talk about the quality, the underlying quality of the asset in question with respect to capitalization, right? Accumulation, the buildup of monetary value is one element of good capitalization, right? It's one part of the criteria we might use to evaluate an asset for capitalization purposes. But access to it, in particular in the form of leverage through loans, is another major part. Sure, you can go sell your gold, right? And this is where I was going earlier. It's like, I'm going to build up all this gold and all these evil dollars. Well, when it comes time to use the value you accumulate, it's, <laughs> it's almost either you're going to go shave off some specks of gold to go trade with the mechanic or you're going to sell for more of those useless dollars. Do you think the mechanic in, in this example is going to be conservative in his valuations of those gold dust or flakes or chips? Well, that's part of it. Who knows, you know? And Well, no, we don't, we don't know the future value. There's no question about that. But I'm just saying that it's like this idea, uh, I mean, I can take a bottle of whiskey to a, uh, a connoisseur of whiskey and he'll have a value, you know, he'll, mm, he'll understand the value. Yeah. Okay. But if I take a, if I take a gold bar down to anywhere, the, the people whom I love and trade with, um, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to look up online see what it's worth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the buyer's going to, you know, he's going to have to sell it at a discount. So how much is he going to have to discount your gold? To endure his discount, his time, effort, and energy. Mm -hmm. Not, not. There's no question. We don't know the future value of it. But it's like the whole idea of carrying around. You know, I get it. You know, you can put a, you know, a, a dang lot of value in gold, U.S. dollars, in a very small thing. But you're going to carry all that around. You're going to chip some off, and then just the interaction of me trading even silver dollars yeah. or whatever. I mean, I, we could go. I'm willing, for the sake of argument, to grant all of that. And say, by magic, let's just assume <laughs> that all of the technical logistical problems are solved. Okay. It still doesn't address the missing legal conceptual link, which is collateralization and lending. Because the two methods to, to deploy capital, you got to sell the asset, which is what we're talking about here. I'm going to give up yeah. the asset okay. in exchange for whatever the money happens to be. And in so doing, I'm forfeiting future growth be it future appreciation, be it if it's a business or a, a piece of property, future interest or dividends, I'm forfeiting future, I'm interrupting compounding, right? I'm stifling the capital accumulation process. And you're assuming I'm, in that statement that it's going one way. Yes. So I, look, I'm granting all of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Take all of it, they can have all the assumptions. Right. Okay. And it still fails yeah. because there is no explicit collateralization guarantee yep. only in whole life you have you know and going back to talking to my uh austrian friend you know i think people see ibc and there's of course this giant commodification scam no, scam <laughs> uh trend online <laughs> where, <laughs> where they want to treat you know it's a marketing program even though oh my gosh. nelson says that it's the ancient uh, dead sea scrolls it's the ancient financial truth it's like a hack yeah it's the, a and so, you know, I'm going through this because he's trying to map out his, his career and... Um, or well, it didn't how, work out for him on Wall Street? How he went, no. Or the financial world, whatever. 
Hey, I'm trying to map out how I want how he wants to be in the financial world, and and so I'm kind of, kind of laying out just what the landscape looks like, and I'm like, you know, if we set the letters I, B, and C aside for a moment, well capitalized whole life, well structured whole life, should sit at the foundation of what it means to have a financial strategy, because of these facts like the inclusion of a loan provision, the guaranteed value, the possibility of uninterrupted compounding. Like they're the first step, whether you're like ideologically aligned with me or philosophically aligned or you know who Nelson Nash is or whatever, like just on the technical facts of the matter, just from the economic perspective alone, systematic, well-structured, dividend-paying whole life that accepts a lot of premium for a long time should sit at the foundation. Now you are automatically asking, without asking, someone, anyone, to get past the word life insurance. Yeah. To be able to consider all of the characteristics of life insurance. And then the additional beautiful characteristics of life insurance issued by a mutual company. Mm -hmm. Whole life insurance issued by a mutual company where the owner can participate in the financial well-being of the company. You're asking them to go jump smooth over the word life insurance. And I know this is trite and simple. You just talk to your brother-in-law about life insurance and tell me I'm wrong. They've got to jump over the word life insurance to even be able to consider these characteristics of which you speak. Yeah. And in addition, because of really programming in the financial world is what I see it as, they've got to get past the word commission, too, mm. because that's just tethered to life insurance. You, life insurance agent, are going to make a commission. Therefore, I'm going to lose something if I buy life insurance. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I the more time uh, God lets me walk around, the more I just go at that all head on. Of course. And someone mentions life insurance or outside the context I see, I I'm pretty bold about it now. I'm like, no, they don't understand what they're talking about. The home offices don't understand. The conventional financial planners don't understand. The emphasis on death benefit is just wrong. It's just wrong. You know, it, wrong on its own terms. Right, like if the if substantial accumulation of death benefit were a good thing, right? If what one should do is ensure his full human life value, which is a big freaking number, then you would want for that person to have an additional incentive to put a lot of it in force and demonstrating that whole life serves as the facility through which you can control the banking function and as the asset where you can systematically accumulate capital that is the way to get a whole lot of death benefit in force right so even on their own terms yeah. you know that and, well and then said right there <laughs> on their own terms on their own terms because <laughs> if it's if it's anything well, else what's new in the financial world anyway now that you bring that valid point up yeah, I mean, if, if it were anything else, the only other thing it could be is like, well, it's not that we want people to have. 
I'm trying to foresee the possible objections, right? Well, no, no, we don't want people to build up a lot of permanent death benefit. We want them to just have enough death benefit for right now and to go invest the difference, right? Okay, well then to me where that turns to is that you then as a financial professional are encouraging people to expose their capital to a cartelized public casino and, and, and to do it through and probably to do it through government programs. And Wall Street. <laughs> and then you call yourself an expert and charge money for it. I mean, I just, when I was talking about it, <laughs> yeah, when I was talking to my friend, I'm like, look, you want to do that? You know, you got to sleep at night. And, you know, we hear about these guys, oh, it was on Wall Street for 15, 16 years. Oh, and, yeah. I've done uh, this and I've done that. Can't prove it or back it up, but I've done it. Well, mm -hmm. and to say, like, oh, I participated in that scheme for so long, like, are you, is that it? And failed. Not leave by choice because they couldn't sleep or yeah. shave because they're looking to, they failed. It's either a promotion, <laughs> it's either a promotion or it's a confession and both are disqualifying. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> how, about, how about don't, oh my gosh. how about we don't do that at all? You know? Uh, oh my goodness. But that's the state. And I, so I get so fired up about <laughs> this, just the state of the financial profession in general. And, and then come back to this idea. It's like, you know what? Yeah. Insurance, life insurance is at the core and not in this gimmicky caricatured cartoon way where these major financial corporations paint a little pyramid on this piece of paper. And say, well, the cornerstone is your life insurance. And then you add your other stones and then you build the pyramid. No, no. I mean, deeply, truthfully, the life insurance is the core of of a, what can what it can only be literally called a financial strategy like insofar as what we mean by financial and strategy is the systematic accumulation of capital like i think so, but there's a lot of this is just marketing schemes presented in the language of strategy it's like just because there are fancy words and government programs and different cash flows doesn't make it strategic strategy implies an underlying value structure and goal set like you just moving money around having a diagram with little squiggly lines on it does not make a strategy and I, <clears throat> anyway you, you know look whenever you know you mentioned human life value human economic value um whenever someone an individual because there's a limit to how much life insurance you can buy, right? The industry has put limits upon you. And the, the only legitimate limit resides between our ears. But don't worry. I'm just saying that the life insurance industry has limits for you. They limit what you can pay in premium. And they limit the total amount of death benefit you can have in force from all sources. Okay, James, what does that matter? I'm telling you this. Whenever you get to that limit with properly structured dividend-paying whole life to solve for your need for banking, that's just dang near financial nirvana. Mm. I don't care who you are. And there's very few people that I'm aware of that achieve that, that have achieved that. Yeah. Yeah. It, and well, it's, it's so, it's still, I mean, the idea is so, not the idea is so new. I mean, Nelson wrote the book in 2020, or in 2000, sorry, but um, I was doing seminars in the 90s. But this, the proliferation of the idea, like the the spread of the idea is really, sorry, I mean, this podcast is for March, four years? I don't know. I don't know. 
March was when we started this in some year. So we should know. <laughs> I think it's about four years. Maybe five. Maybe five. Okay. Oh, no. We should know that. <laughs> we just passed March. Uh, <laughs> But, well, we'll just call it, but we'll just throw out some numbers and not substantiate them. Out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, the the particular historical circumstantial timing of this is why, right? That a lot of people aren't at that point because there's a capitalization period. And if you're thinking long term, it's going to take time. But man, when I get and I've wanted to like do a white paper where on just like cash value growth dynamics and like show what can happen, I kind of. I do it indirectly, sneak it in, in like uh, <laughs> part six of my whole life insurance mechanic series. Like if people could understand that those little bitty lines are the premium lines and these big old lines are the cash value growth lines, it's like. Oh my gosh. And you know, Nelson, <laughs> you know, in his, in his seminar, six and a half hour, which you should purchase, you should own that, right? And you can own that. You know, with the DVDs, you know, the little pieces of plastic. I know, you know, you probably have a game box or your kids do. You can play it there. Or you can access it digitally, you know, uh, at the Nelson Nash Institute, infinitebanking.org. But he talks about, and he, you know, he talks about his 1959 State Farm policy. And he had that graph um, that showed the, the, the premium that was level. And the cash value accumulation and the death benefit accumulation on an annual basis. And it's staggering. It's staggering. Yeah. And it was just a dividend paying life insurance policy. Staggering. And then, um, so that's, you know, if you can demonstrate that today, it's, it's, it is very, it's extremely powerful. It's better than an illustration of, you know, tabular detail in my opinion. Yeah. But, I'm, I'm telling you, whenever you have that type of policy that's structured correctly to the full limit in which all the way up to your insurability is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's unbelievable. And whenever someone has that, and there are a few that do, they will go off the rails explaining how this cannot be done anywhere else in any other can't be. investment any other asset, any other, not that life insurance is an investment, but I mean, these are real estate people, you know, uh, business owners, all American family members, people, and and then, and then we all have a history. Mm-hmm. You know, they might have made mistakes and here and there in the financial world or whatever, like we all have. Whenever you meet or even potentially exceed <laughs> Your your human economic value, your human life value, which is insulting to me anyway, that anybody can put a value on my life, oh, you know, based barbaric. on numbers. But I mean, when you get to that limit of insurance, you can't get any more. You're healthy as a horse, super, uber, duper preferred, but you can't get it because you're at your limit. You're fully insured and it's all properly structured dividend paying whole life. It's like you all of a sudden become deaf to the noise. And can spot it a mile away. You can you can just spot it a mile away. I really, when I get to the illustration review part of the process, I really try to impress on pe- upon people. You know, it's imagine paying in X amount, given you know a certain amount, and every year the benefit for doing that is a multiple <laughs> that grows every year. And the longer you do that, the bigger it gets. Like, it, 
it's again, it's like where I use the words and I don't know if the meaning is really. It can't. It, it can't fully convey. Because there's nothing like it, right? There's nothing. <laughs> there's no else, comparison yeah. for the listener. Nowhere else does that happen, right? Yeah. Everywhere else is either fluctuating value, you know, real estate. Maybe there's intermittent appreciation over time punctuated by severe decreases in value. Uh, or maybe there's just regular systematic depreciation, like a vehicle or yeah. machine or what have you. And no one even thinks in terms of these value terms over time, which is part of the problem. But the it makes it so hard to relate to the growth, what I call the growth dynamics inside of a properly built policy. And which is why, hello, part of the reason I get so irritated about all the structural things that people do yeah. to make premium not payable for near as long as it could have been. Yeah. Right? That's why it irritates me. Or you're saying that's you're sacrificing future years whenever you design a policy. I call them Frankenstein policies. I've, you know, I've disparaged them about every way I politely can. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a contortion of a policy. It's a manipulation. It's a mutilation to try to get all the premium in and all the cash value as soon as possible. When no, 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 you are absolutely sacrificing future years. Which year in the future do you want to sacrifice of anything that you own or love? Every time you said future year, I thought you were going to say future you. And I'm like, yeah. That's yeah, I'm what, okay with that too. That's what you're doing. Technically, this occurred to me for the Nelson National Institute Think Tank talk this year, the less than optimal quality recording of which I'm going to just post because I'm tired of screwing with it. But uh, <laughs> um, is that in, in economic terms, it's just high time preference policy design. Yeah. It's just a relative emphasis on on gratification sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, and, and your Austrians will get that time preference. They just have a problem with the dollar denomination of premium. But, <laughs> yet they live in a house. <laughs> has a mortgage. Have a mortgage. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, have a car oh. that they pay dollars for. It, yeah. So I mean that. Yeah. The the dis, and that's really for so the end of the story is that for my Austrian friend, I was talking to him about this. And oh yeah. He goes, uh, "Oh wow, that just clicked." That makes total, yeah. When you're distinguishing capital and- From the money. Money. Yeah. Whatever. The, and I kind of love to, because we do, he, he it, we have that Manger background, and so he's familiar with capital. In Austrian <laughs> capital theory, like the differences in the different, what people mean when they say capital. Yeah. And we've talked about the distinction between money. I'm like, that's, and he's one of the few with the Austrian background who can understand like the connection between my dissertation work and- the, and IBC yeah. is like, that is, this is why the distinction between money and capital matters. Like, I'm not just saying words. Like, it really <laughs> does matter. Like, it, I don't care what the money is. Right. I care about the, gr the growth. I don't know how else to say it. The growth dynamics, like the relationship between inputs and outputs. I want to control that relationship. I want greater output over the long term. I want to be able to collateral. I want to benefit from this ingenious development in the history of economic thought, which is the idea of prospective value. The idea that something could be worth something else in the future and that 
on the expectation of being able to sell it in the future. I could go borrow money in the meantime and use it while I retain ownership of the asset. Like that's, uh, it, it, it blows me away that in the Austrian school, the refinement of that idea is where it was done most, right? It's where, the, where that idea was best refined by Frank Fetter and Ludwig von Mises. And we just stopped. <laughs> we just abandoned that. Why? And I honestly think, and this is another irony, I honestly think the reason is this paradoxical obsession with national policy, with the macro, with mm. government, with advising, with policy, right? With the business cycle, with these general economic man love phenomena. with centralization, but you hate it at the same time. It, it's isn't it so? It's, isn't that, it so? That is that is the the. I mean, that is almost, I mean, that's psychological, no question. It is, it is the abused and the abuser syndrome. Yeah. It, it, it's departure, like relative to the history of economic thought, especially in the Austrian, it's a departure from marginalism. Right? It's a departure from thinking on the margin, about thinking incrementally, about thinking at the individual level. Like the reason the business cycle, the reason macro phenomena matter is because of the effect it has on the individual. Like you can't get lost halfway in that train of thought and wander off into macro land and just stay there. Apparently. Without. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Listen, when the government pays your salary, you do whatever you want. Well, hey, there you go. I'm go a random walk down Wall Street. I'm going out here because the government's paying me. Of course. <laughs> That's a good. That was funny. You know, random walk theory. That was good. Uh, but you got to return to the effect on the individual. And that's where it departs, you know, because the at at the end of the day, they want to get published. Is there, but is there is that is there is there a movement? Is there a name associated with that uh, abrupt stop or the the lack of continuing? Better Mises. I mean, you know, one stop at Mises. The stop because his his elaboration of. The business cycle was was so antithetical mm. to you know what was happening in the Great Depression and of course Keynes in the middle. Here's another coincident phenomena was that at the end of World War II, governments started to pay economists. And so you had wonder why. Right. And it became and the mathematization of economics got a, a steroid injection. I mean an, an IV and but like an IV in perpetuity of mathematical steroids. I got and, it. It's clear now. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, I, don't need it, and, I got it. So with that yeah. came the, the, the professionalization, you know, you had these chairs and economists, economists, government data scientists could make money being an economist. Mathematicians. Right. And then this is, you know, Murray Rothbard talked about, um, you know, what would the role of an economist be in a truly free market? Like where you don't have government subsidized education and the Federal Reserve doesn't employ half of all PhDs. Like, what would that even look like? You know, and the closest example you can really get, there's a guy named Keith Tribe, T-R-I-B-E. 
He's a history of intellectual thought guy. Not an Austrian, but wonderful writer, independent thinker, self-financed, right? Has a translation company for one of his books, paid his own way to go live in Germany. To, I, I'm like, oh, I can't it's like, oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, although maybe not living in Germany so much as paying one's way to go do this work of scholarship. Austria is very close, so. Right, I can just go down. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, in the history of economic thought, or history of economics, really, prior to uh, Alfred Marshall in England, you know, Cambridge under Marshall had the first degree in economics. Uh, just prior, just coincident to that was uh, the what was happening in economics in Germany. And in Germany, there was a strong vocational, there's always been and still is to this day, a strong vocational aspect to their higher education. Mm -hmm. And economics was really presented as a as a form of like commercial understanding where you like where it it was rooted in practicality in stewardship and like what is what does that mean for the business and for where you're going to go work you know next semester or whatever they called it um and so of course you had people who taught that in these vocational style organizations and it's now it's relatively low paying right it was not prestigious these these men typically had other roles you know they had businesses or jobs you know they did this teaching vocationally you know uh there's a there's a much more blue collar uh grind grittiness to that idea of a free market economist sure. who's doing the teaching because he's doing the working, right? So in it, contrast that with this contemporary idea of an economist and his, you know, the ivory tower, so to speak. Now it's not ivory. It's not even an ivory tower. Ivory tower would be an improvement. Now it's a, it looks like a communist concrete building on some woke campus in the, you know, middle of some, dying city right where you're going to have an office with no window and you got to put your trigger warnings in your syllabi and wear your mask and mm. i mean the the image of what it means to be an academic economist is just putrefying it's really just it's a it's the natural uh evolution of a government bureaucrat yeah right unless you're able to get some outside funding or your business college has relationships to donors and they pay for the nice facilities. Like there's exceptions to every rule, but in general, like the government paid economists, either the university is paying you directly because it's a state government university or they're getting loans that are given by the federal government from the students and you're getting paid that way. Like at the end of the day, you can't escape the flow right. of government funding and it's just becoming so unpleasant you know because but it's, it's but, already there <laughs> but the image right the image has departed it, it is separate from the reality the image of what it means to like become an economist yes. oh, i'm gonna have yeah, these yeah, ideas no and yeah. i'm gonna write and uh, i can think about economics without having to work uh and get paid for it and so that that is the little bit of bait that's still left on the hook to attract people into academic economics um and look, that can work for somebody, you know, if that's what somebody wants to do. It attracted um, you, young man. Yeah, you know, we we live and we learn. <laughs> but you didn't know how to the depths of what you were attracted to. Yeah. You know? 
I mean, and then it was quickly repelled. So yeah. the point being is that Rothbard's response was the role of a of a free market economist is significantly diminished. Right? It, it's it's not the the glam. Of course, it would have to be. Yeah, yeah, because so much of it, the economics, a lot of the economics, academic economics profession, is just a form of systematic malinvestment. Right, it's government. It's just government funded. <laughs> no question. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, if if one wanted to be an economist or an academic economist, you know, go talk to an academic economist and and ask how ask what the possibility would be to to get a paycheck from a, a privately paying customer on a scalable, systematic, like regular basis. See, that's possible. Would they? They would probably look at you like you're speaking a foreign language. They would look at you like they're been made to feel vulnerable because they would know uh, gotcha. that that's not possible. <laughs> sure. Right. Or you go, well, you know, and you go work at a think tank. Are and, you fixing to give me my pink slip? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm in trouble. Anyway, so there's this, there, there's, you know, the economics profession is just detached from what happens on the ground with particular individuals. And simultaneously have abdicated the responsibility to even a to, to, to put forth a theory of personal finance. And of course they have, right? Because they're, they're caught up in the business. Going back to this mathematization and the organized government funding and bureaucratization of economics after World War II. Systematic you know, malinvestment. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here. That, that leads to the, to the journals. You know, and, oh, yeah. and, and whether you can get published and, of course, who sits on the editorial boards of the journals, but the professors and the government funded chairs at the government funded universities. And so, you know, and they all promote their friends. Right. So those are the people who get published. And 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 then all of it. Then you plant those seeds and give it 70 years to grow. And here we are in this 2023 America is exactly why the infinite banking concepts footprint needs a PhD, Ryan Griggs. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Yeah. Well, thank you. And it's going to happen. <laughs> it's I, happening. It's it's happening. Um, but you know that it created a vacuum. The yeah. the lack of engagement by people who have a bona fide tradition. Can you imagine economics. if the vacuum was filled and the competition that that inspired? Oh. Yeah, 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 but it didn't. And so instead, <laughs> instead, yeah, let me come back into reality. Yeah. <laughs> instead, what you had were, uh, lo and behold, people looking for a job. And you can go, a lot of these guys are still alive. You can go watch their interviews. They talk about their early life. Harry Mark, uh, uh, Harry Markowitz, yeah, and Eugene Fama. These kinds of guys, you know, they were good at math. They wanted a job. And, uh, no theoretical convictions or philosophical convictions at all. They just wanted a job. And here you have in the 50s and 60s this new development and in governmental incentivization, financial incentivization of the use of math and economics bolstered by these journals. And, oh, it's a new industry, a new field. And so you get these guys who go put together these hyper basic models tracking or examining investment performance and stock portfolios. And this becomes what counts as the theory of personal finance. 
and then they write the textbooks and then the math just gets more elaborate right because the uh, the regression's got to even and then more all of the designations are based on learning this and applying yes it. all the oh it's so good the yeah. the designations and the training and the marketing all flowed downstream from this kind of thinking yes. and by the time uh University of Chicago, you know, Fama, Markowitz, 50s and 60s got going. Got to remember Solomon Hubner, who was really the first codifier of life insurance marketing, had already introduced the idea of what would become buy term and invest yeah. the difference and, and human life value in the 20s and 30s, right? And it's so ironic that human life value was originally presented as a marketing concept. The consumer advocates hate marketing, but the regulatory standard these days is human life value. It's so ironic. I mean, you just, history is wonderful in that way. Anyway, <laughs> the, the, that, 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 that seed had already been planted, right? So, okay, so from the financialization profession, now you've got this idea of human life value. You got these guys who are doing the, uh, what would become conventional finance at University of Chicago, right? 80s and 90s, you enter the idea of ETFs and Vanguard, mutual funds, indexing. All of this builds on the prior coincidental, you know, tie in with the, uh, governmental financialization of the economics profession, and you end up with this uh, piecemeal, basically a theoretical. You know, we imported some math as much as we could learn because we failed out of the math programs. and still wanted to get a job, and so we put that math in the you know coding engine, and that that gives us the regressions, and then enough to call ourselves economists and econometricians and we get hired and you got you you get you literally get uh economics uh nobel prize winners who were running lehman brothers <laughs> i mean you can't make this up you know uh talk about a total vacuum of economic theory and philosophy i mean it's just there's there's none right but that is the contemporary financial planning strategy. And so when I say <laughs> well-structured whole life is the replacement, <clears throat> it is the foundation, it is the cornerstone, and there are legitimate economic reasons why that can skip over all of this history and development and produce the kind of growth dynamics you were talking about earlier I don't think we really should skip over the history. And I know it's, uh, you know, not everybody likes history and it's like, get to your point. And, and I get all of that. But the people, you know, our clients, our listeners, <clears throat> I think are interested at least at some level of the history. Because when you can connect all the, the all of the dots in history, it's like, okay, my gosh, it just gives it you helps. a broader yeah. view of what is going on. Because what is going on today is like, I mean, it's just being built upon previous misconceptions in marketing and, and ugh. Yeah. You know, if you can spot it and see it for what it is, then it's, then it's like, okay, it almost becomes noise-canceling headsets, mm -hmm, I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. And then whenever you, like, you know, talk to clients every day, all day long, I love you, I appreciate you. 
And I don't care if it's one year, two year, three year, four year, five years, or 15 years as a client paying high premium, whatever that amount is for them. It's, it's appropriate premium for them, yeah. okay, in, a, in, a, in appropriate structures. They look back, and they're amazed they're like, oh my gosh! I mean, I've, yeah, we've seen the illustration. You know, we've had phone calls, we've done the reading, we've done the watching, and I get it. Um, but then, when you look back, when you can fire, literally fire a banker. I mean, I know I've said it before. A client walks into his bank and he's paying off a line of credit. He's on, he's been a client maybe two or three years. You know, I mean, of course, he had policy. He had a policy before that, and. So four four years tops, you know, he's paying premium and it's systematic an expansion of his system because you get it, you see what's going on, you're doing it, you're applying. He walks into his bank to pay off the line of credit and the little teller like, oh, what are you doing? I've got to go get a banker, right? Because that's how they're trained, right? Yeah, the warden. So the banker comes over and he's like, oh, what are you doing? So and so. And, and he's like, well. I'm paying this off. He goes, what, what, what? We can we can extend it. We can do whatever. He said, no, this has become a liability to me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I just can't imagine the uh, look on the face of that banker who's, you know, who knows? I don't want to disparage him. It's like they obviously have never had a bank customer walk in and say that. Right. Much less do that. My whole point. You start systematically accumulating capital, and then you look back, and it's like the company has done what you expected it to do. You know, the things have occurred within reason that was expected because there was no smoke and mirrors and mutilation of a policy and blah, blah, blah. There's a firm foundational understanding of what's going on without being a life insurance expert. Uh, okay. It's like looking back, and then it's like it's it's so easy then to tether the thought the thinking of conventional personal finance mm. it's like yeah that was wrong and i almost feel bad because i got mixed up into it i could walk away from it get it's, it off of me it's this way we've said it before it's the scales falling from the eyes it is it is it absolutely is and then it's like wait a minute what What's my limit? What can, yeah. What is my limit? Yeah. Why? Why is that my limit? Yeah. I know. Yeah. And then it's like, I used to wonder where the premium was coming from. Now I'm very clear of where the premium is coming from. It's it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're not dependent upon me. They're not dependent upon you. They're not dependent upon the life insurance company. You know, they're independent and they're free thinking. They're, I love the communications. You know, we talked about it. You've talked about it. We've talked about it almost, you know, a, a lot what a client advisory client agent relationship should look like where i'm not trying to sell you something mm -hmm. every time you call mm -hmm. me you know yeah. every time i call you you know we're conversing as grown adults mm -hmm. and maybe even learning from each other mm -hmm. right so well james this is what i was thinking i just want you to check my thinking it's like yeah yeah, yeah. well this is the way i say i mean it's 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 what it, it is the way finances should be personal finances should be and the whole focus was on systematic capital accumulation on purpose with intent in spite of the noise 
I mean, you know it's wrong anyway. You just can't necessarily put your finger on it or articulate it like, you know, Ryan. Or, but you know it's wrong. Hmm. It's like, okay. It, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And you take that as, I know we're way over, but one. No, no, you're way over. <laughs> I'm just waiting to go eat. <laughs> one final step. You realize that the more in PUA you allocate as a percentage of your total outlay, the faster you eat up that limited insurability. Yeah, which has been, you know, and I've been beat up for that in the past. You know, these people say, oh, that's, you know, because you got to buy the ability to have the high PUA. You know, you got to buy the term riders or the blended PUA. Um, And to have an agent or a a so-called agent or an agent wannabe or whomever say that that's wrong, it's like you don't know what you're talking about accusing somebody of being wrong. It's yeah. like you should literally, I've said it all the time because it's true and you've heard it. It is better to keep your mouth shut and to have someone think you're a fool as to open your mouth and prove them right. You know, it's just quit talking, <laughs> right? And it, you'll help, you, you, you will do yourself a favor. Yeah. So that is absolutely true. So we're all limited on how much death benefit we can get. Why do you want to put that all up in terms so you can get the high PUA in the first year, which mutilates the policy on the long term anyway? You don't if you know what's going on. Now, come back to 7702, which Mm -hmm. is a boon for the life insurance company, right? Now it requires much less death benefit to put a higher premium in. So that's less, um, you know, that that affects you less now than it did. But it's still- Relative to pre-7702 change, but it's still- It's still, yeah. It's still a factor. Right, which which now means uh, you have the opportunity to pay more in premium. Yeah. Couple that with the fact too, it, all of this goes together so nicely. It's like couple when the term finally does fall off, and you got to bring the PUA down to maintain the non-MEC status. You want to pay a high premium at that point or a low premium? No question. Look, look, look. It's it's this idea of a small base premium is an extension of flawed thinking yeah. and fear. Okay, fear that is, you know, and, and, and really an element of ignorance, right? And it, there's nothing wrong yeah. with ignorance. It can be cured, right? I mean, but it's fear. It's fear. I don't know the future. I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with the premium. You know, all of these things. I can't get all my money out by collateralization or I get mad and quit. You know, I got to have it all out now. It is so short-term thinking, time preference, right? Mm-hmm. So short-term thinking. It's like, you know, I just turned 59 and a half. I know I don't look that old. I know. Um, <laughs> thank you. And it's like, you know, all my career, you know, I've, I've clients, I have clients in their 90s now. Mm. And I have clients legitimately in their 20s, and they're not just children of clients, right? Um, so I have younger, you know, I see my, my newest client is like 14 days old. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying. I uh, haven't met them yet, and I do business with their parents, but they're still my client. Mm-hmm. Okay, 59 and a half. My need for capital has changed. It has not gone away, mm. and it is not going to go away. You know, and I'm going to outlive my lovely wife because I'm married up, and she's younger. Yep. So she's um, going to outlive you, you mean? Yeah, yeah. What did I say? I'm going to outlive her? Yeah. No. Her people live a long time. My people don't. She's younger. She's healthy. I'm healthy, too. I'm just saying I'm going to outlive her. She is going to outlive me. Okay. She's going to have a need for capital. My children, my youngest child is currently 15, right? I can think in 50, 60, 70-year timelines, 
you cannot think or you cannot you'll be more successful thinking long term mm-hmm. okay and it is okay to do that i don't care what happens to the dollar i don't i can't control it you know i can't it's the same with interest rates and mm-hmm. you know real estate values all of those things that i cannot control i can control how i systematically accumulate capital and where i systematically accumulate capital that is the very foundation of personal planning period 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 oh now he's hungry okay thanks for listening (laughs) thank you for joining us on the banking with life podcast if you're watching on youtube make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content. 